It's the Stazapod, yet another question and answer episode. How wonderful indeed. Right now, I'm prepping for LegionsCon slash Glycon this weekend in Seacocks, New Jersey. It is a sold-out show, unfortunately, but uh, very much looking forward to it. It is a East Coast gathering of all the Glyos makers. My dog Bo's excited. He's barking. Uh, hey, do you mind? I'm trying to be professional here. Uh... Thank you. Thank you for disrupting the entire process. Anyway, let's get right to it. We got a lot of questions. Okay, I'm going to make amends here and I'm going to go to the top secret Discord and finally cover a bunch of questions that I missed in the past episode. Uh, our Discord is accessible if you are a patron. It's a nice deep forest community. There are no trolls here. It's quite wonderful, so consider joining. Uh, Charlie Pope wants to know, what paint do you use when you paint figures? Any tips for painting? And our Squire the Slice Verde points out that uh, I went through paint tips in Distazapod number 213 at the 29 minute 30 second mark. God bless you, Eric. Uh, I, (laughs) I don't even remember recording that. But um, I'm glad you have such an analytical mind and can point that out. So I would say, Charlie, go check that out. Uh, The biggest thing is whatever you're painting, make sure that surface is very clean. Uh, The the type of paint you use or the quality of paint you use is less important than just having a clean surface. That includes wearing gloves and keeping the oils and bacteria from your hands off of what you're painting as well. So uh, go check it out, Distazapod 213, and that should go pretty in-depth and cover every question you could possibly have. Next up from Vlad Bad, between the various artistic skills held by different squires, do you see a future where Knights of the Slice could be its own complete ecosystem? For instance, you continue to drive the project while making increased use of people with 3D printing skills, book printing skills, painting skills, etc., and do a sort of fan-based production model? Or are amateurs slash hobbyists more trouble than they are worth? Um, this is a good question. I think in many regards, this is already actualized. We're already here at this point. Now, um, we're sort of a, a respectable but small community, and we will always need outside sales. Like, I will always have to have a .com that is easily accessible, and, you know, the sales from complete strangers and one-time customers, those are important to the business, so that's always going to exist. Uh, but in many regards, this ecosystem is sort of, uh, you know, fully encapsulating and a, a vertically integrated, if you will. Uh, there are many squires that sculpt things for me, that do artwork for me. There are people that contribute in a professional sense and people that contribute in an amateur sense with fan art or customs or kit bashes. Um, so in many regards, we're kind of already there and it's it's quite excellent. You know, nothing makes me happier than being able to hire somebody who started off as just a fan, you know, doing resin or doing their own kit bashing or learning a skill like 3D. Um, you know, this this is a toy line that is powered by the fans and customers that uh, frequent it. So it's, it, you know, I think it's a, a super crucial part of the business as it is. Um, regarding, like, are amateurs slash hobbyists more trouble than they're worth to work with? It's definitely more work than somebody who's more well-established, but I think it's important to give people that 
first chance. Um, you know, my schedule may not always allow for me to hold hands on a project. Sometimes I just need to go to somebody like a David White, you know, who's uh, just cranked out any number of designs to perfection for years and years and years. Uh, but, you know, people that are just starting out have their place here too. Now, whether the project could be self-sustaining just by the hardcore fans, that's an interesting question because I think actually groups get unmanageable when they are in excess of, let's say, 200 people. Now, I think the current logic in the social media world is that once you get beyond 100 people, you can't sort of, uh, cognitively, your brain cannot sort of understand these as people. You just kind of group them together as a, a fan base and you stop being able to individualize these people. We've had more than 200 people sort of pass through the halls of Knights of the Slice. I think our mailing list is something like 1,200 people. Uh, and I'd like to think I have a pretty good map of who the individual people are at, insofar as that they've ever interacted with the fan base, whether it's a Facebook post or on our Discord or things like that. So I actually think beyond like 200 core fans, maybe 250 core fans, um, I think that it just kind of becomes a, a blob, right? If you look at the fan base for something like Mezco or even Super 7, um, the majority of the people active on social media are just there to trash those companies, right? I, I don't, maybe they still are customers and they buy stuff, but it seems largely the engagement is happening in the negative aspect. So I'm perfectly happy with just having like 100 solid Squires of the Slice and keeping the entire ecosystem completely positive rather than try to scale this up and become, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers or customers and have to deal all day long with just people griping and bitching and moaning. I don't think it's worth it. I'd rather make less money and have an audience that is nice and fun to be around and fun to do projects with. Um, I think that that is the choice I, I would make. Next up from Wonder Waffle, have you played Scorn? I have not. I want to very badly. I want to so badly. Uh, Daniel, the the uh, keyboardist from ZStar7, he played it. He loved it. Uh, my PC is sort of in the basement and solely relegated to streaming and music production. So uh, it has sort of ceased to be a gaming PC. And it's also kind of cold down there and uncomfortable. So it's not a great place in which to uh, dive into a game. Upstairs, I only have a PS4 and um, it is not currently available for that. So... I'm shit out of luck for the time being, but really, really deeply would like to play that. Next up, we have a really good and thoughtful question from Dental Bird, and this might take a while to dig into, but I think it's a good one, and it's important to do. Uh, is a character like Frank Castle the Punisher relevant anymore? Ultraviolence in the 90s was exciting with the peak of anti-heroes popping off. Now that we see him being co-opted by pro-military citizens, can Marvel do anything to restore this character, or is he antiquated? I struggle with this as I age because the killer anti-hero feels stale to me personally. I can't wait to hear what you and the rest of the Squires have to say. Um, I've thought about this a lot, actually. You know, growing up, the Punisher was the fucking coolest uh, Marvel superhero. I was a big, huge fan. There's no question about it. Um, viewing the Punisher through today's lenses, <laughs> uh, it's not the same. It doesn't feel fucking cool. 
in many respects, we have to understand the Punisher is a wish fulfillment, right? And largely he's based on films of the 70s like uh, Death Wish or Dirty Harry. I think a lot about the sort of mentality of the white male American in the 70s and the 80s because I think it was a, a, a huge catalyst time that set in motion everything that happened in the 90s up until today. And there are a couple things that just strike me as the zeitgeist of this mentality. I'm reminded of J.G. Ballard and his quote, the suburbs dream of violence, right? I think that's such a perfect summary of this idea. Being an adult male, particularly white adult male, in America in the 70s and in the 80s, uh, somebody who might have consumed Death Wish or Dirty Harry, likely you grew up in the suburbs and you grew up as a beneficiary of the post-war economy and all of the safety that that brought. Now, if you contrast that with somebody who was born in the 90s and grew up with the financial crash in the early 2000s and lived through the uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and then also is here now for whatever this post-pandemic economy is, uh, you are dealing with such crazy, crazy uh, cultural collapses in a way that somebody who grew up in the 70s and the 80s uh, did not deal with. Not to say there weren't hardships for sure, uh, but radically different. But I think there's a part to the American psyche that uh, when there is great comfort and convenience and luxury, it drives us insane. It makes us fear those things being taken away from us. Now we can, uh, you know, we could sort of like hypothesize why that is. Is it uh, guilt on the ways in which this country was founded or the exploitation of uh, Native Americans or African slaves? Whatever the, the sort of genesis point of that neurosis is, it's very apparent. Another trend in the 80s, the satanic panic, right? That was, as I read it, parents' guilt about both parents having to go to work and leaving kids alone by themselves. You know, it, there was no longer a luxury to be able to have a stay-at-home mom. And it, maybe it wasn't something that was, that, uh, you know, women wanted at that time. But leaving your kids with strangers absolutely uh, instills a neuroses. And, and it came to this sort of puritanical frenzy that was the satanic panic. This idea of the other, the, the uh, home invasion fantasy where a criminal, uh, a lawless criminal sort of break into your house or uh, destroy shops in the small quiet town you live in or you know biker gangs passing through and trashing places. This is all the same neuroses we're experiencing today. If you watch any of the mainstream news organizations and their coverage of protests or riots or things like that. It's, it's a pretty universal sort of mind sickness. And so Death Wish and Dirty Harry sort of addressed this fear, whether it was real or not. You know, there's, there's always some kind of truth to these traumatic readings of uh, the state of the world. Uh, they were absolutely like Mary Sue's for the suburban dad, uh, who was 
probably starting to see a decrease in his quality of life. It, it really wouldn't kick in until, I think, present day. You, you truly see what, uh, how very little you're getting for the tremendously expensive cost in taxes of living in the United States. Uh, but, you know, if in the 70s and 80s they started to feel the squeeze of unionized labor, uh, people getting laid off, jobs getting shipped overseas, being robbed of pensions, etc., etc., you started to sort of feel this little gnawing at the corner. And instead of confronting the global hegemony that sort of powers this degradation, you turn it externally. You think of the other, you think of immigrants, you think of criminals, you think of hopheads, biker gangs. And so we see uh, Charles Bronson and we see Dirty Harry Callahan as these avatars really for the answer to this neurosis. And it, it captivated everybody. And The Punisher, I believe, is very much derivative of those two films, but also just kind of the schlock films of the 70s, you know, that were uh, treading on that same familiar territory. And at the time, in the 80s particular, and even up in, through the 90s, you think of Hillary Clinton's famous uh, Super Predators quote, there was this idea that there was a wave of crime about to to duplicate and triplicate itself on the American public, that there was this usually non-white mass of people that were having kids and raising criminals and going to overtake uh, the entire country. RoboCop is a, a really good distillation of that fear. You know, uh, Verhoeven absolutely gets the American psyche. And the way he depicted Detroit was very much uh, speaking to this fear that was being imagined in the male psyche of Americans at the time. So why was Punisher so relevant then and so seemingly irrelevant now? And I agree with you. I actually, I find it completely tasteless. Uh, I think if we, we fast forward from the 80s, maybe even the, the, the peak is probably like, you know, the early 90s when Clinton takes office, Clinton being a third rail type of guy, third column, sorry, that was definitely a Freudian slip, uh, who wanted to be tough on crime. You know, one of his first acts was executing a mentally handicapped uh, African-American who, you know, uh, credit where credit's due, he was a murderer, but uh, he was uh, below substandard intelligence. And he did it as a symbolism that he was tough on crime. He was that dirty Harry. He was that Charles Bronson, but in a democratic packaging. And so pretty consistently you see in American history from Reagan onwards uh, this tough on crime mentality, this, uh, you know, driven by this fear of RoboCop's Detroit becoming every suburb center. Uh, it, it, you know, it just drove every sort of major policy decision, regardless if it was Democratic or Republican. They just wanted to lock up more and more people to prevent this dystopia that was, uh, you know, burned into their brains. So the year 2022 comes around and we have been living in the reactionary policy world to that dystopian vision of the future. And it has kind of created those circumstances 
through its act of trying to avoiding it, if that makes any sense. And I think there's no more telling single moment in modern history than the Uvalde school shooting, where the cops sit in the hallway and he checks his phone, and what is the wallpaper on his phone? It's the Punisher skull. I think that is very, very telling. That is one of those crystallized moments in time that perfectly describe the conditions of where we are. You have a police officer that so identifies with the notion or the concept or the abstraction of the Punisher as this lethal arbiter of justice following his own rules. Not to mention a cop that is uh, outfitted with the the most expensive and the most state-of-the-art tech imaginable, sitting there and not taking action when children's lives are on the line. Meanwhile, outside, other members of that police department are restraining parents and even pepper spraying and handcuffing parents who are trying to run in to save their children. I think that sickening scenario is exactly why the Punisher is not relevant. And more than not relevant, it's so out of place and so offensive. Not even, I'm not speaking in a like, oh, someone insulted me on Twitter and I'm offended. This is like a, a deeply unmoral, unfair and unjust appropriation of this character. And here's the real kicker here. If you ever want to know the morality of Disney, they make a big deal. They hem and haw about gay rights and they have pride days and they have uh, gay and minority characters in their movies and they're they're always sure to send out press releases about that and hey they just launched a uh, fashion crossover with Black Panther 2 so they can't be racist and they can't be sexist and they can't be bigots but here's the real proof Disney could take action at any moment and prevent the Punisher logo from being utilized the way it is a good friend of mine worked at a patch and sticker company so they would get uh, requests from all sorts of places, police unions, sports leagues, high schools. They just want to get some pats, some patches, some enamel pins made. And most of his day was spent receiving Punisher logo derivative works that police stations wanted to use for whatever, you know. Uh, their bulletproof vest, or maybe, uh, you know, to put on the vest right next to the body camera that they conveniently turn off all the time. Um, now, this friend of mine, they have a no-fly list, right? So if somebody submits something from, I, I, just using example, The Simpsons, they're going to send the design back, and they're, they're not going to make that because they don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to get, a, you know, into legal issues with trademark claims with whatever the IP holder is. But Disney does not enforce the use of, uh, the misuse of the Punisher logo at all, to my knowledge, because they don't want to do anything that comes off as being anti-cop, or they don't want a press release being released from a police union saying that they're being sued for utilizing their trademarked IP, which would be the Punisher logo it would be very bad press for them. And so they don't do it. They enforce almost every other claim on their IP, but not that one. And yes, I know some people are gonna say, this was addressed in a Punisher comic book. Uh, Punisher went up and ripped off a 
sticker that was on a cop car in a comic. But that is just a symbolic dangling of the keys in front of an audience to placate them. That is, that is like a such a neoliberal move that doesn't solve anything, but allows, again, a couple dozen press releases to be fired off to sort of symbolically look like you're working at a problem when you are not really and not addressing it at all, and you actually have the means to do something about it. More generally, I think ultraviolence is a great storytelling tool. I enjoy ultraviolent movies. I enjoy the sort of, uh, the fiction of revenge. Like, these are wonderful things that can be enjoyed in, uh, you know, as a sort of fantasy scenario, as entertainment. But I think there is some level of awareness now in the world that the true harm coming to us is not from the random street crime that we imagine will happen. Uh, it is from the people in charge who deny us health care, who make our lives miserable. But we can't really depict that uh, in media. And in closing, uh, I've talked about cops and police before. Uh, for those who don't know, my father is a retired police officer. Uh, I've had the wonderful experience of having a bunch of you reach out and share your stories. And, you know, there's quite a few listeners that are in law enforcement. Uh, and I got to say, briefly, the little I know about the people I talked with that are in law enforcement, I don't get the feeling any of those people would stand in a hallway and do nothing while cops, while uh, kids are being shot. Just, I, I don't see that as being a plausible scenario. Um, so, so just wanted to add that in there. But yeah, I sort of agree with you. I don't think the Punisher really has much of a relevant place in today's modern world, unless you're going to really examine that and make him the villain. And also, I say this as a Dolph Ludgren's Punisher apologist, I think that was maybe the second rated R movie I saw. I had it on VHS, and there is a scene with boobs in it. And I love that movie. It was mind-blowing. I didn't even mind that he didn't have the iconic skull painted on his shirt. I thought that was such a badass movie. <laughs> I'm not sure it holds up, but uh, big shout-out to uh, Dolph Lundgren. All right, I'm feeling fired up, so we're going to go to the next political question from Brett Arnickel. As... Tribalism is running rampant in American politics these days. What ways can you see local communities and the country at large unifying? Well, uh, right off the top of my head, I would recommend people read Hate, Inc. Uh, by Matt Taibbi. I think it really does a good job of explaining that tribalism is the new business model and has been for maybe a decade or two. Uh, the, the war has come home. The frontier is now here in the United States. And all of the media corporations are financially invested in inflaming that and making the other side into the absolute villain. This leaves our politics as one only of brutality, in which when your guy is elected, he's going to brutalize the other side and vice versa. And it will probably just cycle through every four years where there's a new person they, they uh, you know, use their powers with the FBI and whatever else to immiserate the opposite party and vice versa. So I think in many respects, the first step is to just let go of this idea of tribalism 
and understand this is a manufactured concept. Not to say it doesn't exist and the symptoms aren't there, but that largely our day-to-day media messaging is one of tribalism and it is enforced and monetized and super important to keeping the gears moving on everything. So I think one is to recognize that that is largely a construct of the world or of America. And since it is a construct, we can sort of acknowledge it and we can discard it and try to see this in a different way. My belief is the true way to unify the United States of America is something that uh, politically is unfeasible or, if I'm being generous, unappetizing. And there would be many powers outside of politics working against uh, such a solution. And that solution is give people stuff. There's a reason the New Deal was passed. It was to placate uneasy masses. Now, uh, this is before my time, but the New Deal was given to the American people not that long after the revolt in Russia. I had to look it up, but 16 years after the formation of the Soviet Union, as a matter of fact. This was a carrot. It bestowed upon us many rights that we still have to this day, and generally uh, is something we take for granted, but that has high approval. Now, the New Deal, uh, an unfortunate offshoot of that, was a reactionary force working against the New Deal. And they've been in power slowly and steadily since, and they're still working at chipping away at things like Social Security and the post office, and basically giving Americans zero for the tax dollars that we pay. So unification would be relatively simple. Uh, It would simply be a list of offerings to every single citizen of the United States in a universal fashion. No means testing, no qualifications. You simply get this benefit for being an American. It would not be hard to imagine what relatively uncontroversial things that offering could be. Uh, I think obviously, a nationalization of healthcare would be number one. I'm sure everybody who's hearing this has had to, at one point in their life, call an insurance company and deal with an insurance company. And my God, is that a, a pain in the ass? If not a barrier to treatment. You want to further sweeten the pot? Add dental and add vision. I'll go a step further. Universal basic income. Let's give everybody $2,000 a month. If you make well in excess of that, then you get a $2,000 credit. Now, that's not to say a broad declaration like this wouldn't have its detractors, and there certainly would be people that would benefit from such a new deal that would deride it because the programming on both Fox News and MSNBC and CNN would all be against or sort of slanted uh, in disfavor for such a program. That's because they're all part of the same team. They all go to the same cocktail parties. They all have billionaire benefactors who don't want social services. They don't want a safety net. They don't want their taxes going to things like libraries. But the truth is, there are many more people like me and you that have to work every day for the rest of their lives. Then there are New York and LA media types who are millionaires who are paid by billionaires. So if we can just uh, get get some charismatic leader to be miraculously elected 
on the promise of doing these things and then enact these things, uh, you would see a unification of the United States. There's no question. But you have to understand every single system would be working against such a thing, including the Democratic Party establishment and the Republican Party establishment. And every blue check on Twitter, every Jake Tapper, and every Fox News host, and every Newsmax host, they would all deride such a plan. But it is something uh, that is needed if we're, we're going to sort of continue shambling along. Local communities, I'm sort of less concerned about, right? Because these are the people you have to live amongst. And there's not really the choice of being so divided as there is on a sort of state or national level. Not to say they're not susceptible to this sort of tribalism frenzy, but there is a sort of basic functionality of the local municipalities that really can't play too heavily into this segregation between Democratic and Republican. Like, stoplights will simply stop working. Like, it, you know, fires will not be put out. Um, so, you know, in some respects, I don't want to say local communities are insulated from this, but there is very much, it is kind of a luxury to think in terms of red versus blue in every decision in your life. Like, my grass still has to be mowed regardless of who the president is. My local food bank still needs toilet paper, regardless if it's Trump getting reelected or Biden getting reelected. You know, you just sort of have to boil this down to just immediate material reality. What is going on in your backyard that you need to sort of deal with in order to survive? Everything else is kind of a luxury to fantasize about and, you know, fear the impending doom of. I think the more likely scenario is that we are sort of in the moment of divorce of America. And that may only have sort of subtle changes. I, like, I don't think we're going to lose the right to travel state to state, although I could see, like, borders on Florida and, you know, Florida in particular being erected, you know, like a checkpoint as if you're going to Canada or something like that. But largely, uh, we're just going to see this sort of division based really on location. I think that, you know, people will just sort of float, if they can afford to, to the cities that aesthetically align with their value set. But anyway, I digress once again. Uh, to put a neat button on it, what is a way I can see the country unifying? It is simply whoever's in power to give us stuff. Give us a lot of stuff. Make an offering. And it has to be material. It cannot be symbolic. It can't be a George Floyd mural painted on a wall if none of the issues that led to George Floyd's death are unresolved. People need housing, people need health care, and people will probably, if the economy continues to sort of sputter and spiral, will probably need a UBI just to keep the consumer culture going, just to, to simply prop everything up. So that would be it. That would be my prescription. Just give every citizen universally a lot of stuff.
Okay, now for the lighter half of the Stazapod. Some heavy questions there, but a lot of fun. Um, before I hop into the final questions of this episode, I did want to give a shout out to the Nobbywood, who has his own exclusive card slicer figure, not figure, but card, that uh, you can add to your card slicer collection just by becoming a patron of his. So go check out his Patreon and get yourself the very, very exclusive roller bard card. Won't that be fun? First of the last questions for this week from Valverde. How would his most men like the Bugwing? Is the standard build, the diver parts, and everything else would be variations, or are all cohesive parts equal and fair game? On another note, if you find you have time to fill, how much in your head do you juggle pouring some Bugwing parts in colors that match previous releases, like, for example, Pangaea Island, so as to build up prior characters and add on play value as opposed to shooting all in new color schemes, and how much is Mostman part of that decision making? Does he have the angles he wants to see, or do you try to cater to both? Do you confer on what would be best? Or is the approach to make all good ideas as much as possible, but release slowly as the story calls for? Um, wow, these are really, really good, thoughtful questions. So, I don't consider the standard build for Bugwing to be the diver parts. I actually much prefer the Star Marshal body for male characters or male identifying characters and the uh, Verkill body for female characters. Um, those are kind of the results I think work the best. And, you know, there was obviously big question marks as to which of the final pieces which fit best with which bodies. We were kind of really stabbing in the dark here to figure out how to make this thing work uh, without my ability to be over in China anymore and oversee these things when the test shots come out uh, there's a whole lot of guesswork involved so that's kind of how I view it but I, I would not besmirch anyone who had a different sort of standard set for what the bug wing should be now the second part of this question about color matching uh, going back and revitalizing older styles or sort of running things in the production to boost previous characters, you know, that's a very insightful question and that is something that I have to weigh every time I'm ordering. Um, there have been some orders I've placed with the factory that are like almost all about boosting previous characters that I might have in stock or that I don't feel really hit in the correct way. Um, I think if you're placing, I found the best order I can place uh, is usually a third of sort of accessories or upkeep or items that work with previous figures, you know, matching color schemes, things like that, that, that you've outlined. A third should be uh, kind of new and unique characters and styles with an idea already in mind that I'd like to bring to fruition. And then a third just kind of material style or things that have no context right now, but are inoffensive enough that they would fit with almost anything, if you know what I mean. Like, um, you know, if I run a character in a light gray or white or black or uh, gunmetal, those are going to work with almost anything, right? They're pretty inoffensive color schemes, and they don't really need a complementary color. They sort of complement almost any kind of spare part I could have. So... I found that when I break up orders into that, that series of thirds, which again is uh, pieces that help out 
previous styles, new characters with, you know, some inkling of a story to tell, and then material bases that kind of help and booster everything. Um, those tend to be like the, the best bang for my cash, if that makes sense. Bugwing was kind of a unique experience because Mark came with very fleshed out ideas about what styles he wanted to see. Um, I'm sort of taking for granted that you guys have not seen everything that was in the first wave, uh, and I keep wanting to sort of <laughs> spill the beans on what those are. But uh, needless to say, with any production order, we have, you know, we have banked a quite a few releases. So Mark had pretty clearly defined ideas and color schemes and hair colors uh, that he wanted to see happen. So it was my job as kind of the midwife to just help bring that, uh, you know, through the birth canal into real life. Um, you know, in the case of like what we ordered, I was thinking more, I'm just going to go with that third category, which is like very easy base material that match almost everything. That was where I was going to stick my flag and I was going to let Mark, uh, you know, not let Mark, but it's his project, but Mark would be more positioned in the narrative sense to sort of eke out very specific characters that he wanted to see and really, you know, have uh, fully fleshed out paint styles and things like that. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think it worked pretty well. Um, you know, Crimson Rider is the best selling figure of this year so far. So that's great. Uh, I also I think we managed to do a good job of ordering the correct amount because it stayed in stock for about a week after the drop, which is great. People who missed out on the first go round were able to get them. Uh, we also do have bits and pieces from the full deluxe figure that will matriculate out there in different ways. We don't have any more of every component of Crimson Rider, but um, you know, it will certainly happen. Also, interesting note, uh, we knew we wanted to, to sort of do a black and red character. Um, Mark also obviously wanted to do the Crimson Rider head, but those were separate ideas that got put together at the last moment. It was going to be a female-led character, and then I did a build with the Crimson Rider eye patch head, and I showed him a picture, and it just clicked for both of us. We were like, yes, okay, this is the lead character. This is how we launch it. And this is how the mofos tie into it. Also a big shout out to uh, Mosman and being very dogged in wanting a postcard comic to come back and to ship out with the orders. Uh, and we were lucky enough to get Jacob Chabot to do the artwork. So, you know, mega props to Mark for seeing that through. It's nice to have postcard comics again. Uh, you know, I always, I always want to get back to it, but it's, it is, uh, it's very tough to do it on a short time frame, and I never have enough time to kind of plan out my drops. But it's nice to sort of have something physical once again. Uh, but overall, you know, I think Bugwing's a success. I'm looking forward to releasing more and more styles of Bugwing. And uh, I just had an idea, actually. I got to put some pen to paper. I think I got an idea for our next drop. Moving along... Noah Serkin, who I believe, I hope I'm saying your last name right, by the way, I believe is a newer patron. Welcome to the Patreon. Uh, I don't know if this question has been answered before, but have there been ideas for a shark cherubium head, great white hammerhead or goblin, to round out the aquatic alternate universe diver heads? Um, 
There has been, but not in this sort of form we're thinking of. I actually designed a shark head that fits onto Radix torso. Um, I never went to 3D modeling with it. It was just kind of a sketch and an idea in my head. But um, there's some very early artwork that kind of uh, played into the idea of Radic. I will see if I can find it. It's a bit elusive of a piece. But this really nice uh, kind of uh, ink drawing I did of like a generic side-scrolling beat-em-up. And there are components from there that I directly ripped in order to create Radic, specifically like big baggy jams, pants, and, uh, you know, big muscular torso. But the character in question has a shark head. It's supposed to be a mini boss. And this is Radic in a very early incarnation. Uh, so it was certainly something I was thinking about. Uh, I do really want to get back to making Cherubium heads in the near future, but I, I don't know if more aquatic ones are on my short list. I think I want to get back to land-based animals and kind of round that out since now we've got the jelly head and we have the ray head. Um, so uh, I would say a shark head is in my top 10, if not top 20 list of to-dos for Cherubium, uh, but um, there were no plans to sort of release one with this diver round, but I'd love to see it happen. Final question from JT Gravile. Nice Italian, strong name. How did the pre-Halloween show go? Any different performing in costume? Uh, well, look, I always love to get Zed Star 7 questions. No secret there. Uh, let's see. The show was awesome. Uh, we were sort of, in typical fashion, plagued by early audio issues. Uh, just seems to be the case wherever we are. The, uh, the owner of the venue came up and he's like, Well, this is your fault for having all these little gadgets and gizmos. <laughs> And uh, he is correct, like, we don't make it easy for ourselves uh, because our rigs just have so many different components and each instrument or each effects pedal are areas that can go wrong and create feedback or create a buzzing noise. Um, so that's on us for sure. It was a great show. Uh, I specifically chose a costume that would not be prohibitive for me to perform in. Uh, so, as people probably saw pictures, I was Solaire from Dark Souls, and um, I did have a sort of, like, green fringe uh, neck piece in keeping with the character, but that sort of quickly fell off and became unmanageable. Once that was gone, you know, I was free to move about uh, in whatever fashion I want. Uh, in... A smart move, I opted not to wear actual chainmail, but instead a sort of Under Armour shirt with a sublimated print of chainmail. That was great because it was super comfortable to move around in, but, you know, gave a optical effect of, you know, in keeping with the character. Uh, so I did, you know, I, I felt like uh, I made the right choices. Brendan, bless his soul, did face paint, which I do not want to perform with face paint and a, a big blackout contact lens, um, you know, <laughs> face paint is just so uncomfortable for me. I don't know if I, I seem to have like a allergic reaction to most brands of it. Like my eyes get very swollen and puffy. So, um, and then Dan, uh, just was, uh, he had a lot of plug-in devices that made him glow and flash. Um, I don't know how comfortable he was, but, uh, 
I think it went really good. This It's also interesting because I'm coming off of playing two shows in one week, which we've never done before. I had a solo show um, for Club Draw two nights ago, and that was a, a fantastic experience as well. It's It's interesting, like, you know, there are plus and minuses to playing with a full band, and there are plus and minuses to playing a solo set. Uh, you know, I'm not sure which one I prefer. They're, they're very different experiences. But I would say the solo set was um, kind of like a cohesive experience. And if anyone's curious or interested on our SoundCloud, I have the entire session. It's two hours long. Uh, very good background music. You can kind of put it on and just, uh, you know, have your work day or whatever you want. Um, you know, in... The solo session, I have to blend songs together. And, and the purpose was not to be a performer, but to create an ambiance in which people can be creative and draw on their sketchbooks and have some ramen noodles and chat with their friends. So that's a much different goal than the Zed Star full band show, where it is like an assault on the audience. We are trying to, like, with every ounce of our blood and sweat, to win people over to applaud or to clap or to dance along or to have a good time you know it's really like an uphill struggle it is it's open warfare um and you really got to swing very high and very hard but the uh solo set it's like okay let's just see what kind of vibe we can orchestrate here how can we influence people to untap some creativity and uh you know i they're radically different experiences but um i cherish them both it was a lot of fun I'm a bit behind, but I would like to chop up and have some live footage from the Halloween show put up at some point, maybe some from the solo set. Problem is, I'm heading into the city momentarily for Glycon this weekend, so I've run out of time, and uh, usually after a show, I like to spend the next day just going through footage and pulling audio and uh, slicing things together. I have not had the luxury of doing that this time, but uh, there should be some documentation coming soon of these wonderful shows. I don't know when the next one will be. You know, it'd be a real shame if somebody were to sneak instruments into Glycon and do an impromptu set there. I think that would be terrible, right? We don't want that. Nobody wants that. I hope it doesn't happen. That sounds sounds really bad. In any case, uh, one more thing I want to talk about before I jump out of here. That is Normal Combat 2, the Alexander Trilogy, the end of his story, and the riddle at the end. So, uh, as sleuthing squires have found out, by reading Normal Combat and solving a a prompt at the end of the story gives you access to a mystery figure. Uh, at this point, quite a few people have completed this prompt and guessed the answer correctly. Uh, I have said nothing about it. I have offered no guidance. I will continue to do that. This is a group project. And, you know, I suppose any in any way, any in every way you can solve it uh, is legitimate. Uh, I have not packed up any of these orders. Those orders will be packed up uh, after Glycon and be heading out. For those who haven't checked the Patreon in a while, there is a special offer I've put together that is not regarding this Alexander figure, but rather um, for a very special kit-bashed figure... I, I initially had this idea and put these together for Glycon. 
but I don't have a ton of them. I have like 40 of them. And I don't know what the turnout at Glycon is going to be, and, but I do know that the majority of my patrons are not going to be at Glycon. And so it didn't seem right to me to offer something up to Glycon that my patrons were going to miss out on, but there isn't enough to sort of do both. So ultimately, I've decided to release this Salvage Trooper uh, for my patrons. Go to Patreon now and you can get the links and you can order it. This is a very fun kit bash. Uh, that I've wanted to do for a long time, and the time is right now. So that will be available along with corpse bags, which I think everybody wants to get their hands on and missed out on last time. I've put together a whole new batch of those, so you can uh, keep your eyes peeled for that. Um, other than that, I think that's it. I think that's everything. So we will uh, chat soon, and if you are going to Glycon, I look forward to seeing you there. Playing us out today is everybody's favorite kraut rock band, Zed Star 7, Pizza Out.